So you all came this morning to hear me preach. <laughs> Last week uh, we started a three-part series on the issue or I think problem of the providence of God with the story of Joseph as it is written at the end of the book of Genesis. This doctrine of providence, I call a theological problem as much as a solution because to claim the providence of God is to ask then how much is God intervening in history? How much of history in our lives are determined or predetermined by God and God's providence? Last week's passage painted the family portrait of Joseph, the youngest of the 12 boys and clearly Jacob, his father's favorite, standing beside him richly uh, embroidered in his richly embroidered coat of many colors as if he were king and royalty, while the rest of the boys, arms crossed and resentful, were off to the side watching it with great jealousy. They were dressed in jackets from Walmart, it seems. But it was not the coat alone, for Joseph was a tattletale. When his father needed to know something about his boys, he'd send Joseph out to do some spying. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph was a dreamer. A gift he openly claimed had come from God and claimed to his brothers and father that God had come to him in a dream that they would one day bow down to him as if he was a king. One day when Jacob sent Joseph to find his brothers who were out keeping their flocks and come back and report on how they were doing, the brothers catch, caught sight of him coming from a distance and so they came up with a scheme. Let's kill him and throw him into the cistern and then put blood on his coat and take it back to father. We'll be rid of him. But Reuben intervened, so they just threw him in the cistern, hoping he would die there. But then they saw a caravan coming in a distance, a caravan of Ishmaelites going to Egypt to trade their wares, and so they summoned them over and made a deal with them. If you take Joseph with you and sell him to us, you can then sell him in Egypt, maybe even to Pharaoh as a slave. And that was how our passage ended. The Ishmaelites took Joseph and sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Did God cause that? Did God direct every single act in that play? And last week you heard me say, I don't know, but I don't think so. As far as how much influence God has in our lives or in history, I think that we can only see it as we look backward, not so much in the present and certainly no predetermined outcome in the future. Today the story continues with its sequel, picking up in chapter 39. Let us pray. 
Quiet our minds and open our ears, O God, that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear your presence in our lives and in the world. Amen. Hear the word as it comes to us from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, bought him from the Israel, Israelites, uh, uh, Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted his care of everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused to lie with her. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go in and lie with her and be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed and lie with me. But he spun and left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and lied. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until Potiphar came home. Then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and I ran out of the house. When Potiphar heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your Hebrew slave treated me, he burned with anger and Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. 
He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. While this ends the passage I read to you, it does not end the totality of the passage we must understand. So I'll give it to you with a with a short version. Joseph's now in prison and he's prospering there. He has received the warden's trust, just as he had Potiphar. Pharaoh, in the meantime, imprisons two of his own people, the baker and the cup bearer. That is to say, the wine steward who would always care for the wine and then drank it before Pharaoh did to make sure it was not poisoned. After some time, these two servants, seeing that Joseph was a man of trust and, and had the warden's trust, came to him after each disturbing, having a disturbing dream. They had heard that Joseph was a man who read dreams, and so they told Joseph their dreams. After Joseph interpreted it for them, telling the baker that his dream meant that he was going to be let out of prison in three days, that the king, Pharaoh, would lift up his head out of prison in three days and then cut it off. And to the wine bearer, he said, the king, Pharaoh, will lift your head up out of prison in three days, and when you get out, you will be back in your place as wine steward and cupbearer. But do me a favor, Joseph said, when you get to Pharaoh, would you please remember me to him in hopes that might, he might release me from my prison? Two years passed, Joseph is still in prison. The cupbearer had forgotten about Joseph and had not mentioned him to the king. And then the Pharaoh wakes up one morning with two of his own disturbing dreams. The first is that he is down by the river and he sees seven very full, very healthy cows. The second dream is that he is down by the river and he sees with the seven healthy cows, seven lean, diseased, poorly cows. He has no idea what it means. So when he wakes up, he calls all of his magicians and all of his prophets and asks them to interpret it. They have no idea. At that point, the cupbearer remembered that Joseph was a, a dream interpreter, and, and at that remembrance, he told Pharaoh, and Pharaoh called for him out of prison to come and interpret his dream. And what Pharaoh told him was that those seven healthy, fat cows means that there will be seven years of harvest and produce in the land, 
And the seven cows who were lean and poorly means that there will be seven years after that of drought when there will be no food. Now this dream isn't that hard to interpret, but Joseph did by saying, God is telling you as king of Egypt that there will be seven years of plenty and seven years of drought. And what you need to do, Joseph said, is to take a fifth of all the plenty each year and store it for grain so that you will have it when the seven years of drought come. Pharaoh was so impressed by that that he decided to put Joseph in charge of all of it, giving to him his signet ring, which made him second on the list of power, as well as brand new clothes, as well as a wife, as, as well as all that he needed, everything he needed to run the show for Pharaoh. Step by step, he did what he said. Then the famine came, as we are told, which is where next week's passage begins. And it starts with, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Hmm. There seems to be a pattern here. For now, let's look at how far we've come. Did God cause all of this to happen? Every single thing? Was it God's hand that threw Joseph in the cistern? Was it the hand of God that caused his brothers to sell him to the Ishmaelites? Did the hand of God make it so Joseph excelled at so much he became his right-hand man? Did God's hand entice Potiphar's wife to seduce him? then to frame him, then to have him thrown into prison? Where is God's hand in this and where not? There are some who believe that God's hand causes everything, every single thing. The particular tie I picked out this morning was not my decision. God made it for me. I just grabbed it. That God is the cause agent for every single thing in the world, was, is, and ever shall be. And I gotta say, when we were young, we tended to believe this. And also, you know, when we're large and in charge, we tend to believe it. When we're sitting on top of the world and we're a part of the empire and we've got all the problem, uh, all, all the all the power and all, all the things that our hands, isn't it good to be able to say that God has preordained me being in this seat? That all I have is because God has decided it. But it takes a lot of denial to live in that kind of narcissism, especially as we grow older 
and have more experiences in life, we discover that not everything is hunky-dory. Stuff happens. We face tragedies. We lose things. We get kicked off our thrones. And when that happens, often when you believe that God is the cause of everything, it is the next step to believe then that God is the cause of nothing and you lose your faith entirely. I've been there for some time, a little time in my life, but not, but not it turns out, during the grief of Nancy's death. It was before then that I went through this dark night of the soul. It didn't last long, but it forced me to ask questions of my faith and who is God. I wondered if God existed. But by grace, I grew up from that and came to see that out of that experience, God brought something new to bear, and I became a better person. I got a call from somebody about a year after the accident saying that they had friends whose daughter was killed in a similar Explorer rollover accident coming back from a ball game at South Carolina to Atlanta. Would I go speak to them? I called. They were reluctant. They consented. We set up a lunch. I knew there was nothing I could tell them to make them feel any better. I knew I was not going to tell them that this was God's plan. Good night. I wanted to know where they were coming from, and so they told me they came from a church in Cobb County that was pretty, pretty fundamentalist, and that they had been told all their time there that God was the proximate cause of almost every single thing in life. And now, after losing their daughter, they said, if that is the case, we can no longer believe in God as a good God. I hear that, I said. I hear that. And it struck me that not only had they lost their daughter, they had lost their faith as part of it. All I could say to them was, be be open to the possibility that God did not cause this, but that God can use this in some way that is redemptive for you and the world, that God can turn it in some way that there will be some small blessing in it, even if it is not even close to your loss, that there will be something redemptive. And they sat looking at me stone-faced, of course. Because how can you own that until after you've experienced it? God either causes everything or God doesn't do much of anything, like our founding fathers thought. They were deists, which is to say that God created everything in the world, but like a great clockmaker, after creating it, now sits back and watches it tick, tick, tick. Our job is to care for the clock and keep it wound. God leaves it up to us. So here you have it, everything or very little, and those are the poles that we live between. I want to say to you that there's a third option. 
And that option is that God, the Lord, is with us. Sometimes to lead us beside the still waters and green pastures. And sometimes to walk with us as we travel through the valley of the shadow of death. With us in ways sometimes we see and sometimes we don't. Encouraging and providing for us in ways we do not even see and understand, yet down the road with eyes of faith, we can look back and see, my gosh, God brought me some provision, providence, to help me through. On this side of things, I think it's like looking at the back of a tapestry. You ever looked at the back of a tapestry? It's chaos. There are threads coming and going all over the place. There is no pattern there. You cannot even faintly discern what the picture, the tapestry looks like from the front. You just see these threads hanging down, dangling all over the place. And I wanna say that much of life is like that, but to have a life of faith is to believe that on the other side of that tapestry, the side where God takes all of the threads of our story and the world and weaves them together into something at the end of time that we will be able to see and gasp by the awe and wonder of what it now produces. And even now, we might get a little piece of that denouement, that final blessing, a little piece of it, if, if we pay attention to life and we ask the question about God's presence and we put on the eyes of faith and we're willing to stand on hope and trust. There's a Native American tale, you probably know it, this reminds me of, about a tribe whose warriors went out and found and you heard of horses, strong horses, and they brought them in. And, and the shaman said to the chief, well, that's good luck. And the chief said, maybe. And the chief's son decided to try to tame one of those horses, and he got on it and fell off and broke his leg. And the shaman said to the chief, well, that's bad luck. And the chief said, maybe. And then another tribe invaded, and they were at war, and all the warriors went off to fight except the chief's son because he couldn't ride with a broken leg and the shaman said to the chief well that's good luck and the chief said maybe because the lord was with joseph he survived his brother's anger and intention to kill him that's good luck right then he gets sold to Potiphar and becomes his right-hand man, and that's good luck, right? Then he gets thrown into prison because he's framed by Potiphar's wife. That's bad luck, right? And then Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer come to him, and he interprets their dreams, and that ends up being good luck. Yeah, maybe. And then he survives the next two years in prison, until he's called up to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and that's good luck. And then Pharaoh has so much trust in him that he makes 
Joseph, his right-hand man, giving him almost everything in the kingdom, and that's good, maybe. We don't know yet. For that, we wait for the rest of the story, not just the third part of the series. By the way, in the original version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken, composed in 1970, excuse me, 1907 by Charles Gabriel and written by Ada Habersham, the lyrics, different than what we know, point to this. They go, There are loved ones in the glory whose dear forms you often miss. When you close your earthly story, will you join them in their bliss? Will the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and is a better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face with the spectacles of faith, hope, and love. We catch even now a glimpse of God's presence with us, and I bet you, dimes to dollars, it will surprise you every time. Amen. <laughs>